Hey everyone, welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, Sarah Avery, your host. Today, religion for atheists. Alan DeButton is a popular essayist and philosopher best known for the book How Proust Can Change Your Life, about the lessons to be found in remembrance of things past. He's also written books on love, on travel, and on architecture. In his newest book, called Religion for Atheists, DeButton tackles religion. In the book, he makes the argument that by rejecting religion, atheists miss out on what it has to offer culturally, spiritually, and ethically. Instead, he proposes a kind of a la carte approach in which a person embraces various rituals and beliefs while basically passing on the idea of a god. Could this approach appeal to secular Jews? We sent reporter Hugh Levinson to discuss this and other questions with DeButton, who's based in London. Here's their conversation. Alan DeButton, thanks very much for speaking to Vox Tablet. Britain is quite typical of much of Europe in that you have a vast majority of people who don't attend religious services, don't really profess any spiritual faith. And then you have this ferocious battle that's going on between militant atheists on the one side, most famously Richard Dawkins, the biologist, and then you have religious figures on the other side defending faith, and notably the chief rabbi of the United Synagogue, Jonathan Sachs. Now, you're proposing what might be called a kind of third way, religion for atheists. What actually is that? Well, against the background of this very aggressive atheism, I'm making a point which is, in a sense, striking only because of the rather peculiar atmosphere that we're living in. I'm saying that atheists could learn a lot from religions, that there are all kinds of areas in religion, particularly around community, morality, ethics, education, art, architecture. There are things that an atheist and a secularist should should take on board, I'm alleging. And this has caused an extraordinary furore, as though this was a very odd thing to say. I mean, in a way, it should be utter common sense. I mean, the, the interest of the project should be in the specific way in which these questions are looked at. But the overall point is the one that's proving contentious. In other words, there are lots of militant atheists who are saying religion, well, in the words of Christopher Hitchens, religion poisons everything. In which case, if you are an atheist, you must steer clear of everything to do with religion. And that's a very, very odd position indeed. So what are the things that religion can learn? You mentioned morality. I mean, some people talk about a God-shaped hole. Is that what atheists are missing? The overall structure of religion is that human beings are fragile, broken, if you like, and in need of guidance throughout their life. That throughout life, there are all kinds of challenges which humans can't cope with without the help of religion. It could be supernatural help, or it could be communal help, or it could be structured rituals, it could be more personal, more psychological, more pastoral. But in any case, we need help. And that's a striking contrast to the secular world, where help is generally frowned upon. Let's remember that only stupid people read self-help books, allegedly. I'm not, I'm not condoning this, but that's, the, that's the, the view. In other words, elite culture sees it that once you are an adult, you do not need guidance. I think that's a major, major contrast and one that I explore throughout my book. So you're saying that religion takes essentially a very pessimistic view of human nature, of, of human frailty. Yes, I think one of the most appealing sides of religion is that it sees 
life on earth as imperfectible. Now, it tends to do this, depending on what faith you're looking at. In so it can't be made perfect. Yes. The, yes. And atheists believe that we can be perfect if we just tried a bit harder. There's a strain within atheism. Not, not every atheist believes this at all. And it's, you could almost say it's a professional danger of becoming an atheist, um, that you'll fall for a kind of Whiggish technological view that essentially suggests that with a few more advances in medical science and a few more tweaks of the economic system, nirvana can be had by everybody. And I think that is dangerous because individual life remains fraught and structurally, in a sense, tragic because we have to die and we have to watch those we love die. And many of our aspirations will remain unfulfilled. So we're in for some shocks. And religion eminently recognises this. And for me as an atheist, is never more appealing than when it does so. So the tradition of Christian pessimism or Jewish pessimism is very appealing and is a kind of repository for all kinds of melancholy or unhappy feelings that the modern citizen, even of a developed country, is, is inevitably going to feel. You talked about your, yourself as an atheist. How much has your own upbringing contributed to this line of thinking? Look, you could do a piece of, of psychoanalysis on why I came to write this book in exactly the way I did. Let me sketch a few of the elements. I grew up in a Jewish household, a household that was extremely proud of its Judaism and, frankly, racist against outsiders. And I was taught to think as a child that Christians were pitiful because they were so optimistic. They actually believed in Jesus. Rather than resisting this lure of the false prophet, they fell for it. And they thought, you know, paradise was here. And so they were seen as, you know, it was like believing in Santa Claus. But on the other hand, and rather oddly, sitting alongside this sort of tribal pride was a complete thoroughgoing atheism which extended to all aspects of Jewish life. So in my childhood, I was never taken to synagogue. We didn't do any of the high holidays. I was not offered a bar mitzvah. None of that went on. I think my parents were typical sort of mid-20th century optimists. They, they believed in science and technology in a better world. They'd fled persecution, hardship, and they just associated religion with the old world that they were trying to get away from in themselves. Uh, they, they associated it like a giant cobweb that they wanted to cleanse themselves of. But isn't that one of the things that makes Judaism very different to Christianity, where personal belief is at the core, certainly of Protestantism, whereas there are many, many Jews who will identify themselves as Jewish, but will never go near a synagogue, will never say a prayer, will never break into Hebrew, Yiddish may be, but that's it. So is what you're proposing any different? I mean, I have some sympathy for that position, and it has charm to it, but I don't know really how much it stands up to scrutiny, because how can you continue to identify yourselves with Judaism if your level of commitment is so minor, if you know none of the words, none of the language, none of the rituals, if you don't believe? I mean, at some point, one has to say, look, you know, you may have come from a nominally Jewish background, but it seems like you know, you're on your own at this point. I mean, because otherwise, what, what is Judaism? Um, is, it, is it literally just saying, I am Jewish, and that's it? That seems a, a rather thin appreciation of what is, after all, a complex and noble religion. So I'd almost defend religion, Judaism, against the charge that one could be religious at that sort of level. Nevertheless, I think I've probably been helped in my thinking by the long tradition that there is in Judaism, which does suggest that rituals, organisation, 
a certain respect for going through the motions is actually very important. And as you rightly say, Protestantism is at the opposite end of the scale. It wants to throw away religion and have faith, whereas Judaism holds in mind the possibility, at least, that one could have religion but no faith. And that is a position that I'm interested in. I guess the difference is that I'm not solely interested in Judaism. I'm interested in other religions too. But but yes, one could say that Judaism has, has taken probably the further steps down that road. You mentioned Judaism and ritual. There's a very striking passage that stayed with me from uh, Religion for Atheists about Yom Kippur. I don't know if you could read that for us. Sure, let me read it. The Day of Atonement has the immense advantage of making the idea of saying sorry look like it came from somewhere else, the initiative of neither the perpetrator nor the victim. It's the day itself that's making us sit here and talk about the peculiar incident six months ago when you lied and I blustered and you accused me of insincerity and I made you cry, an incident that neither of us can quite forget but that we can't quite mention either and which has been slowly corroding the trust and love we once had for each other. It's the day that has given us the opportunity, indeed the responsibility, to stop talking of our usual business and to reopen a case we pretended to have put out of our minds. We're not satisfying ourselves, we're just obeying the rules. So in other words, Yom Kippur is an opportunity to do something we would all like to do if we could pass on the responsibility to someone else or something else like religion. That's right. I think... One way of defining a religious ritual is that it is a communal, organised journey through a psychologically awkward, difficult, tricky passage. And you are absolved from the responsibility of either inventing it yourself or taking responsibility for it entirely. And one sees this in in, in lots of rituals, lots of rites of passage, etc., where the individual is spared the full burden of making that inner transition with someone else or or alone. But how can you do the same thing without having Yom Kippur? First of all, I think it's important to recognise that this is what religions are up to, so that it, it makes one think about how difficult it is to say sorry otherwise, for example. So I don't know whether there's an immediate solution, but it makes you think about the wisdom of religions in helping us along. And it, it also does give us a feeling for what things might be done communally as opposed to individually. The secular world places a huge emphasis on individual feeling, authentic feeling. If you want to say sorry, you say sorry, and say sorry when the feeling comes. You know, it's you dictate your own timetable. Religions say, no, we'll have a particular day, we'll name the day, and then everybody will do it. And the secular romantic spirit thinks, oh, that's a bit bossy, or that's telling me what to do. And I guess the religious counter-argument, which is a fascinating one, is to say, by being told what to do, you're not being denied your freedom. You're, in fact, given access to a freedom that you would have found hard to find your way to if you'd been left simply on your own. And you have a very specific, as quite often in this book, programme for how one could achieve the same thing of us communally saying sorry, but without having to believe in Yom Kippur. Well, you see, I think that the most important thing in Yom Kippur I'll obviously offend many believers, is not necessarily God. It's the community and the communal act of saying sorry. God is watching and God occupies a position as as a perfect being in relation to whom everybody's faults can be admitted to. But strip that away, it would be totally possible to imagine, and indeed secular Jews probably do imagine this, that one could take a lot of what Yom Kippur is and orchestrate it without reference to a holy creator. 
because really the essential psychological manoeuvre is it is legitimate to apologise at this point and everybody's doing it at the same time. That's the key thing. So a secular day of atonement? A secular day of atonement should not be impossible at all. Yeah. I suppose the question is so often with these is who decides? Well, this is about organisation, and a key question that people often ask me is to say, well, we used to know in a religious age what was right and wrong because you know God handed down the tablets and all the law came from God. But if you're an atheist, that argument doesn't really make much sense because if you're an atheist, you really believe that religions are human conventions and cultural constructions. And if you take that seriously, then you think, well, if we've done it before, we can do it again. In other words, all it requires is a human convention. After all, we have many conventions in many areas of life that go quite well. So perhaps the deeper question is, how do you organise a human convention around anything? And it's not easy and it requires all sorts of things, but it's not impossible either. It's been done a lot outside of religion. Can atheists really be described as a religion or compared to a religion? Because the thing that defines them is what they don't believe, Mm. what they're opposed to. So trying to bring them together, surely this is doomed. Yes, I'm not trying to... Perhaps my title is a bit ambiguous. My title of my book is Religion for Atheists, which could sound like I'm trying to invent a religion for atheists. No, it's not. It's more how atheists might look at the existing leading religions. So to Without answer, sacrificing their atheism. Yes, exactly. Well, yeah. As atheists, what could they gain from religion? But to answer your question, no, I don't think that atheists should band together to create a secular religion. I mean, there have been various attempts in that direction, but I think they fail to understand that the level of organisation, a centralisation that is present in religions is simply incompatible with much of the spirit with which people enter into an atheistic lifestyle. So I don't think that's possible. However, what I think is possible is that moments of secular life could definitely be illuminated and at some points enhanced by a proper understanding of religious tradition and religious insight. So people still need to be taught how to be good. Yes. I mean, from the tone of your question, this sounds like an extraordinary thing. But yes, they do. First of all, with a few provisos, firstly, no one has the answer. But there are definitely suggestions as to how one might approach the great challenges of life. And it seems strange to me that we accept this absolutely in many areas of life. I mean, no one would think of taking command of a Boeing 747 without having read the manual, or at least had some suggestions. But we seem to think that it's utterly normal that one could embark on a marriage or raising a child or opening a career or facing a mortal illness without benefiting in any way from the positive and wise experiences of people who have come before us. I mean, to me, civilization is partly about the transmission of knowledge. And that knowledge will involve scientific knowledge, but it must also involve what we could broadly call wisdom. And to deny that transmission seems very much like shooting oneself in the foot. Why not pick up some tips? And yet the educational machine that surrounds culture and that interprets culture for us, I'm thinking here of chiefly the university, is very resistant to the transmission of wisdom, seeing this as a flawed and possibly overly didactic project. But I think it's a very necessary one. Because it would be presumptuous for us to assume that for a secular society to assume it knows what wisdom is. That's right. There is such a fear that someone would turn around and say, I don't agree with that, or who are you to tell me what to do? Which seems bizarre, because 
wisdom can be transmitted, or ideas can be transmitted, without authoritarianism. I mean, no one's proposing here that you would say, you know, Jane Austen is going to order you how to live. But we might say there are suggestions in Jane Austen as to how one might live. And these are suggestions. So I think that people fear a religious structure being imposed on the transmission of culture, when precisely once we are atheists, secularists, we're not going to be bothered by that kind of authoritarianism. That's the whole point. So that's a typical example of the way that the secular world has secularized badly. It's it's remembered the worst bit of religion, i.e. the authoritarianism, and forgotten the best bit, i.e. the transmission of wisdom. One final question, which is, this is a kind of pick and mix attitude towards religion that we like this bit of the architecture we like this bit of ritual we like this bit of community we'll just take this and that and put it all together surely there's no coherence to this without the spiritual belief that lies behind it if you are a believer to pick and mix between religions is is not only offensive but incoherent and it's incoherent because you essentially believe that your faith has the root to the truth. So to try and pick and mix between different faiths is seems odd and, and unnecessary and, and impious. However, if you're not a believer, and if you treat religions as cultural creations, you're in a very different spot. You're much more like somebody who's looking at a range of novels. After all, picking and mixing exactly what we do with literature. We, we go to one author for one thing, we go to another author, for another, and we create, if you like to use a kind of colloquial modern expression, playlists of our favourite pieces of music, and novels, etc., etc. And we don't see anything impious. I mean, it would be odd for someone to say, you know, hang on a minute, you just told me you like Jane Austen, and, and now I learn that, you know, you, you've read Nabokov. What's going on? Hasn't Jane Austen said it all? And one wants to say, well, no, there are resources that she hasn't explored, etc. So you know, once you start looking at religions as cultural productions, there seems nothing wrong at all with, as you like, picking and mixing. So commitment is very valuable in lots of areas, but as an, as a, as an atheist, there seems no reason to commit one religion. Alan de Botton, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. Hugh Levinson is a radio producer based in London. Alan de Button's new book is called Religion for Atheists, A Non-Believer's Guide to the Uses of Religion. It's out now from Pantheon. And now, an important question. We really do want to know, who do you want us to talk to on Vox Tablet? What ideas would you like us to explore? We welcome any and all suggestions, so please don't be shy. Send us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. Thanks so much for listening. Please do join us again next time. <laughs>